evening and welcome to Socrates in the City. Hi, uh, my, name is, uh, my name is Eric Metaxas. I'll be your server for the evening. Uh, I'll tell you the truth, we have a fabulous uh, evening planned for you. Uh, not, uh, not tonight, but very soon. Uh, it's, we've been planning it for quite some time. Uh, it's important to, to let you know that it, it's in the planning stages. Uh, but I also think tonight will probably be pretty good. We are excited uh, to have Dr. David Berlinski all the way uh, from Paris. By the way, how many of you are here for the first time from Paris? <laughs> Anybody? Just, just Dr. Dr. Belinsky. Right. Well, I see so many of you are new to Socrates in the city. That let me tell you a little bit about who we are. Um, we started out um, as a small ladies macrame club in 1972. Uh, most of the ladies were actually quite tiny. Uh, and uh, we eventually uh, broadened uh, out to include decoupage and string art. Uh, in 1979, we decided to disband, but we, we simply didn't know how. So we, 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 uh, we, hang, we hang together still. Uh, in 1982, we, we decided finally to include men uh, in the group, at which point I had a series of uh, operations, and voila, <laughs> eke homo, uh, here I am. So, of course, we take our name from Socrates, who famously said that the unexamined life is not worth living, and then he blew his brains out in an alley. Uh, no, but, but he did say that, and I thought, uh, whatever, 12 years ago when we started Socrates in the City, that uh, it would be a good idea, especially in a decidedly thoughtless place like New York, and I was born here, so I can say that. Um, I'm also 132nd Cherokee, can I say that? Uh, <laughs> What? Any other? Any others? Any other 132nd? Um, that's right. That's right. There's a slot machine in my briefcase. Um, so, come on. We're gonna, we got to get serious. But we like to ask the big questions. You know, settle down. It's not all. It's not all jokes, folks. Uh, we we like to ask the big questions. The big questions about what we. So, say we call life, God, and other small topics. The big questions, the more controversial, the better. Uh, the kind of stuff that maybe you wouldn't uh, encounter at a, at a cocktail party. Um, we like to invite speakers usually that bring a different point of view uh, than you might hear at the 92nd Street Y or in all, all the other great places you can go um, in New York who can challenge our assumptions. Tonight's speaker, David Berlinski, seems, I think, to be tailor-made for Socrates in the city, and we're thrilled to have him with us. We also have, I think, here a number of special guests, including a former Socrates in the city speaker slash guest, one of my favorite people on the planet, Mr. Dick Cavett. He's right here. Um, yes, Dick. Yes. Yes, you can leave now. Oh, man. Incredible. Incredible. And uh, I can't believe that. If, if, if you got that reference, you dated yourself. That's amazing. A lot of these crazy young kids have no idea what you just did. They really have no idea. Um, uh, also, we've got a number of friends all the way from Seattle, from the Discovery uh, Institute. We want to thank them uh, for being a part of making tonight possible. Uh, whoever you are, Discovery Institute people, raise your hands. Thank you for being here. Uh, and uh, but, uh, but now to tell you a little bit about 
David Berlinski. Um, he is, as I think you know, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. He's written works on systems analysis, the history of differential topology, haven't we all, uh, analytic philosophy, and the philosophy of mathematics. Uh, he's authored books for the general public on mathematics and the history of mathematics. These books include a tour of the calculus, which, which is, thank you, which is, which is about calculus, uh, the advent of the algorithm, which is about algorithms, <laughs> Newton's gift, which is about Isaac Newton, uh, and Infinite Ascent, a short history of mathematics, which is about uh, fairies, unicorns, and the comedian George Goebel. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he'll talk about that. Uh, he's, um, Berlinski has been published widely, almost corpulently, I think. Uh, if I may say so. Uh, two of his articles um, on the origins of the mind and what brings the world into being have been anthologized in the best American science writing of 2005 and the best American science writing of 2002. He received his PhD in philosophy from Princeton and was later a postdoctoral fellow in mathematics and molecular biology at Columbia. He's also taught philosophy, mathematics, and English at Stanford, Rutgers, the City University of New York, and the Université de Paris. Did I get that right? Almost, yeah. Uh, in addition, he's held research fellowships at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Austria and the Institut de Haute Etude Scientifique. Close enough. Uh, <clears throat> he lives uh, in Paris, which is fine, but I, I wouldn't want to make a habit of it. Um, he was born in the U.S. to German-born Jewish refugees who'd emigrated to New York after escaping from France as the Vichy government was collaborating with the Germans. Uh, his parents were born and raised in Leipzig. Uh, my mother was uh, born and raised near Leipzig um, before they fled to Paris, where they were married and undertook further studies. German was David Berlinski's first spoken language. And I'm told today he can sneer in seven languages. We're looking forward to this tonight. Uh, he's the author of several detective novels and, novels and a number of shorter works of fiction and nonfiction. Uh, a critic of evolution, we'll hear about that tonight. Um, uh, he's a senior fellow, as I said, at Discovery, Seattle-based think tank. That's the hub of the intelligent design movement. He shares the movement's disbelief in the evidence for evolution, but does not openly avow intelligent design and describes his relationship with the idea as warm but distant. Uh, he said, it's the same attitude that I display in public toward my ex-wives. Uh, so, yeah, so he's a scathing critic of Darwinism, uh, yet unlike, unlike his colleagues at the Discovery Institute, he refuses to theorize about the origin uh, of like, life, unlike, for example, Eric von Däniken. That's good. You guys can leave if you got that joke. Excellent. Take a free book and get out. Uh, he appeared in 2008 in the film uh, Expelled, No Intelligence uh, Allowed, and he says he'd like to see, it'd be nice to have a real spirit of self-criticism penetrating the sciences. I hope we'll hear more about that um, tonight. Um, which brings us to his book, The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions. Uh, tonight, uh, Dr. Belinsky, as is typical of Socrates and City, he'll be speaking for 35 or 40 minutes uh, on that subject. Uh, and then we will open things up for Q&A, always, I think, the most fun part of the evening. Uh, William F. Buckley said of The Devil's Delusion that Berlinski's book is everything desirable. It is idiomatic, 
profound, brilliantly polemical, amusing, and of course, vastly learned. Well, there you have it. I'm sure we're in for a treat. Uh, Dr. Belinsky is really quite a writer, quite a speaker. I first encountered him in Commentary Magazine maybe 15 years ago. I've seen him uh, here and there on TV. You may remember The Rifleman with Chuck Connors and, and The Jeffersons. He was not in those shows. Um, but uh, we are really thrilled to have him with us here tonight. How about a warm Socrates in the City welcome for Dr. David Berlinski. That was a lovely introduction. <laughs> Little short, but lovely. <laughs> Thank you all for being here tonight. I appreciate the fact that you went out in this weather to hear what I have to say. Can everyone hear properly at the back of the room? It's okay. At the beginning of the 17th century, Galileo had occasion to write a letter to his friend, the Benedictine Benedetto Castelli. This letter is one of the founding documents of the scientific era. In part, it's a deeply felt plea for freedom of expression, for tolerance, for openness of opinion. And of course, it makes perfect sense because even at the beginning of the 17th century, Galileo had felt the hot breath of the Inquisition wafting over his shoulders. He knew that his support of the Copernican theory, which at the time was completely, completely unproven, might well put him into difficulties with the Holy Office of the Inquisition. Nonetheless, he persisted. But what is fascinating about this letter, what is fascinating about Galileo as a seminal figure, is the distinction that he draws he says to his friend, and of course he said to posterity, look, the Bible is God's word. We treasure it. And of course the Bible is inerrant. It cannot be mistaken. The book of God's word is, after all, the book of God's word. However, any text can be misinterpreted. And we must be sensitive to the possibility that the text could be misinterpreted. On the other hand, there is the book of God's work. That is the book of nature. The book of nature is written in its own language. It's written in the language of mathematics. And only mathematicians can penetrate that language, and therefore only mathematicians are in a position to say, with complete confidence and lucidity, what the book of nature actually means. Galileo went on to say that like the book of God's word, the book of nature is entirely inerrant. The laws of nature are what they are. 
they cannot be changed, they cannot be altered, they can only be appreciated for what they are, and they can only be appreciated for what they are by the mathematical community. Now there are corollaries to this doctrine of two books, the book of God's word and the book of God's works. One of the obvious corollaries is that if nature is accessible, only to mathematicians, because it's written in the language of mathematics, then it follows that the mathematicians must form something like a priestly class. A second corollary follows at once. Of what good is it to have a priestly class if in fact the class is telling us exactly what we ordinarily think? That is impossible. So not only is the book of nature accessible, accessible only to a certain class of professionals, it contains secrets and mysteries that the rest of us must find inscrutable. These are necessary corollaries. And as I said, I think this letter to Benedetto Castelli is a founding document of the scientific era. What makes this so richly ironical, remarkably ironical, is that at roughly the same time, Cardinal Bellarmini, one of the great princes of the church, was thinking about precisely the same issues. He was a man of tremendous sensitivity. He knew new ideas were afoot, and he was no fool. Somebody once handed Cardinal Bellarmini a telescope. He jammed it into his eye, couldn't see a thing, of course, and he pr pronounced himself profoundly impressed, <laughs> as one would expect. But in his own letter to a provincial rustic who had written to him in alarm about strange doctrines being pronounced by this Ipernic, or whatever his name is, he was referring to Copernicus, Bellarmini wrote back something very astonishing. Bellarmini said, look, the Bible is inerrant. It cannot lie. However, we may be mistaken in our interpretation of what we might see on the printed page. We are, after all, only human. If it should be demonstrated... Bellarmini went on to say that the sun stands still contrary to what we think scripture is telling us, contrary to what we think scripture is telling us. It may be necessary in the fullness of time to revise our interpretation, but that time is not now. We're talking 1615, 1620, and Bellarmini was absolutely right. That time was not now because the Ptolemaic theory was still a powerful theory. And above all, the new Copernican theory could not answer some very simple questions. If the earth is spinning on its axis, as Copernicus argued, and if it is revolving around the sun, why is it that we're not flying off into space? Copernicus had no answer. Kepler had no answer. Tycho Brahe had no answer. And Bellarmini notices this 
And he adopts as the position of the Catholic Church, and this is the ironical part, precisely the same principle of tolerance that Galileo had advocated in his letter to Benedetto Castelli. Yes, if the facts are so compelling, as well they may be, that will be the time to revise our opinion of what scripture says. That will be the time. Bellarmini had presided over the execution of Giordano Bruno, and as you can imagine, a word from him carried a certain dread weight in the intellectual community. Galileo certainly understood what was being said. When Galileo, at his trial, renounced his views, this was less a matter of truckling to the Inquisition and more of frank recognition that he could not, in the light of 17th century religious politics, honestly say that the Copernican theory had been demonstrably triumphant. He couldn't say that. Nonetheless, it is Galileo to which we repair in the year 2012, and Galileo's position, I think, is roughly our position. Say what you want about the Bible, if you wish to say it's inerrant. Go right ahead. The book that counts, interesting, the book that counts is the book of God's work. That is a book. It has a language. And if it has a language, it has its interpreters. If if it has its interpreters, it has a preferred class to speak to the book of God's work. I think in every century since the 17th, this has been the position of the scientific community. And in the year 2012, there is a massive sense of entitlement in the American-European scientific community with respect to the book of God's work. If you have views about physical reality and you're not a member of the priestly class, you may as well keep it to yourself. And if you do venture into criticism because you find a doctrine absurd, aberrant, or simply ridiculous, be prepared for the full weight of an inquisition to fall on your shoulders. Be prepared. I would like to juxtapose that view, the canonical view that Galileo and Cardinal Bellarmini has given to the scientific community with a much older view, much, much older view. In the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel, as you may remember, the king is sitting in his immense banquet hall at his revel, with his retainers all around him. It's close to midnight. Heinrich Heine wrote a wonderful poem, a wonderful poem about the subject. He's got this superb phrase in Stummeru lag Babylon, in dead silence, the city is sleeping, but the king is at his revels in his banquet hall. And as midnight approaches, Mitternacht, in Heine's poem, the king sees a hand, a disembodied hand, writing on the wall. 
Astonishing. Astonishing. And the hand writes the words, Mene, Mene, Tekla, Uparashan. It's not in the language the king knows. He draws himself up in full defiance and says, I am the king of Babylon. What is this? But beneath the arrogance, there's a tremor of anxiety. He demands to know what the words mean. He calls in Daniel. Daniel regards the words. And he tells the king what they mean. And what they mean are among the most solemn and dread words in the Bible. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. By morning the king was dead. Those words, thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting, it seems to me, express very well in the year 2012 the secret and often the expressed view of the scientific community with respect to the rest of us. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your views are absurd. They do not count. They do not reflect reality. And here you see a perfect confluence between the attitude of the book of Daniel and the canonical letter that Galileo wrote about the priestly class responsible for the interpretation of the book of nature. And once that interpretation has been made, the judgment is that you are weighed in the balances and found wanting. This is a situation, excuse me, which ramifies throughout the scientific community. It has become a I think, a a wonderfully dominant topic because it is so hard to penetrate various veils of rhetoric by which it's masked, but it is there nonetheless. One of the most profound ways in which you are weighed in the balance or the balances and found wanting occurs when the issue of religious belief or persuasion arises. Now, everyone in New York or in Europe is aware, for the last 10 years or so, scientists have dropped that rather decorous indifference to religious conviction that until 1980 or so they had maintained when the uh, great logician Kurt Gödel published an ontological proof for the existence of God. And this is one of the figures, the seminal figures of the 20th century. He published it, or he circulated it to his friends, and immediately he wrote all his friends, and don't get me wrong, I'm not a believer. I did this as an intellectual exercise just to test my own intellectual strength. Every man is curious about the limits of his power, is he not? That's changed. That's changed. In book after book, physicists and biologists have argued that in point of fact, we now know, because we are scientists, that the religious beliefs of mankind are now, have always been, and will always be in error. This despite the curious fact that not one of the great physical theories mentions the existence of God and its premises, 
or in its conclusions, nonetheless, the scientific community is persuaded by access to some form of a multiple insight into nature that we now know that the religious beliefs of mankind are in error. Now, I think it's true that all men at some time doubt the existence of the deity and some men at all times doubt the existence of the deity. I don't mean to say that this is good or bad. I think it's the human condition. We grope, we're in the dark, we're not sure of what we're doing. What is so curious is to look at the number of books affirming that science has shown that God does not exist. And that is a very emphatic declaration. It's like the declaration that there is no number between four and five. That's a demonstrable fact. There is no natural number between four and five. So these people are uh, adopting a platform of declaration of some vigorous effect. What is so interesting what is so interesting is to see that directly after the books have made it to the bestseller list, in conversation or in interviews or in scribbles not widely noted, they walk that particular dog back discreetly. <clears throat> Before his death, I had uh, an opportunity to debate Christopher Hitchens. <clears throat> he was at the time terribly sick, so I hold him to no account with respect to what he said, but uh, having made an enormous success by means of the proposition God is not only not great, he's not there, Hitchens was asked how certain he was of this conclusion. And he said in his own <clears throat> inimitable fashion, well, it could be that there is something <clears throat> like a world spirit. Ah, that's a very different proposition <clears throat> from the proposition that God does not exist. Richard Dawkins has made a fabulous career writing about the inexistence of God. But when you look at his book, what you see is not a defense of the proposition God does not exist but a defense of the proposition, well, probably he does not exist. To say probably he does not exist is not to achieve deductive certainty, isn't he? Because there are plenty of opinions which might suggest that probably he does exist. In case after case, in case after case, it's apparent that this vigorous, ebullient defense of atheism when examined, repairs to the standard view that human beings have held since time immemorial, which is, it could be, or on the other hand, maybe not. <laughs> In a remarkable, a remarkable series of studies, Freud discussed the neurotic personality, and he made a striking observation. He said, so far as the neurotic personality goes, the neuroticism is expressed in a variety of ways. All of these symptoms serve one function psychoanalytically 
and that is they're in the service of repression. And what is being repressed, it differs from patient to patient, largely unacceptable memories. And then Freud made a remark which distinguishes him as a profound and great thinker. He said, no matter what, the repressed has a way of returning. No matter how arduous the mechanism of repression is, there is always something at work known as the return of the repressed. When you look at the climactic enthusiasm for the new atheism, in London there's a bus with a placard on the side. God does not exist, have a great time. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> Although why God's existence should preclude having a good time, I'm not entirely clear. I would think you'd have a much better time if you were certain that God did exist. Nonetheless, the ebullience with which the new atheism is affirmed conforms perfectly to Freud's doctrine of the return of the repressed. Because as soon as the spotlight of publicity, which is necessary to sell books, is dimmed, and as soon as the lecture hall spotlight is diminished, every last one says what we all would say. Huh? Maybe, maybe not. Could be. Who am I to say? That is the return of the repressed. And that is a point of criticism of the doctrine that the sciences have a unique form of accessibility to reality. Because that doctrine is poisonous and untrue. That's one example. I would like to be allowed to offer you a few other examples. In the 18th century, a French philosopher, very clever, said, look, I've got a button here right on my table. You press this button, you get anything you want, anything. Untold riches, the love of beautiful women, inexhaustible power, anything you want. The only slight impediment is that 10,000 miles away in China, a peasant will drop dead in his tracks. you will cause his death. The question that he raised is, who amongst us would refrain from pressing the button? And who amongst us would be content to have that button in wide currency? I've always thought that was a profound moral question. A profound moral question. A few years ago, and we're now spanning 300 years, a well-known cosmologist, speaking off the cuff, as almost everyone who says anything interesting about cosmology speaks off the cuff because the official doctrine is so absurd. <laughs> speaking off the cuff said, you know, I understand quantum mechanics and uh, 
I sort of get all this stuff, but you know, I have a, I have a, a simple-minded question. And you know when anybody ever says, I have a simple-minded question, the question is not simple-minded, she's just embarrassed to ask it. Tell me, he talked to other cosmologists, tell me, you got the electron, right? It's going around, you know, whiz, 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 and it follows an orbit. And that orbit determines the chemistry of ordinary life. And that electron does the same thing all the time. What compels the electron to stay in its orbit? Notice the choice of words. What compels the electron to stay in its orbit? Notice the resonance. What compels us not to press the button? Notice the questions are the same. What is the source of binding compulsion, whether in the moral life or in physical life? Notice at once this transgresses the boundaries of Galileo's universe. This is not uniquely a question about the book of God's work because we're talking about a moral issue. This is not uniquely a question about the physical world for the same reason. And yet when you look at the logical form of the question, what compels the electron? Again and again and again. And what's stopping you from pushing that button, killing a Chinese peasant, and making yourself infinitely rich? There is some compulsive force at work that we all recognize, but cannot name. There are attempts in the literature to make that clear, but they've all been failures. For example, we might say that the laws of nature, oh, there are compelling force to their logical form. They're necessary, just like the laws of logic. The trouble with that theory is they're not necessary. We can very easily imagine an alternative to the laws of nature as we understand them. And by the same token, we cannot say the laws of moral life, the compelling force that stops us from killing an innocent victim simply to enrich ourselves are necessary. They could be otherwise. We cannot appeal to necessity of any logical sort in order to make this point. Well, then maybe nothing determines it. Maybe we live in a nihilistic intellectual world. Okay, that's a possibility too. But are you prepared to say, ladies and gentlemen, that for this reason, a question like, what compels the electron to follow its orbit, is meaningless? I don't think so. We recognize the question as deeply significant. Here we stand at a very considerable remove from what Galileo thought of as the book of God's work. We're reaching questions that the book cannot answer and that its interpreters cannot read. It is quite true that the scientific community believes you are weighed in the balances and found wanting. But that is a maxim that cuts two ways, doesn't it? 
There's nothing preventing us from saying, with respect to the scientific community, here are questions. And we are prepared to say, you are weighed in the balances and found wanting because you cannot answer the questions that haunt and oppress us. That is the second example, it seems to me. One of the dominant convictions urged upon the human race by the scientific community concerns a certain myth that the progress of science, which is real, which is very powerful, which is very significant, no one should doubt it, has meant progressively a disenchantment with nature and a form of cultural humiliation whereby at every step in the development of the sciences, human beings and their works have been demoted from a central position and reduced to the margins. Apparently, Stephen Jay Gould, for example, argues this, this process began in the 16th century with the discovery that, in fact, in fact, the Earth is not the center of the universe. It continued step by step over the course of three centuries, And it reached an apogee with Darwin and the discovery that, in fact, human beings are nothing but a continuation squalid enough of the animal kingdom, cousin and kin to every shambling and repulsive thing that lives, and hardly distinguished from the great apes except for the acquisition of a few adventitious characteristics of no particular significance. Get used to it. Now this, I think, has been drummed into popular consciousness with absolutely no interruption. Each step of this progression is, of course, absurd. No one who believes that the earth is the center of the universe is prepared to make purely a geographical argument. Home is where the heart is, not where geography points. And if we say that the earth is the center of the universe, we mean something quite different than the geometrical center. The supposed demotion of human beings as being created in the image of God, proceeds by means of the ascent of an inferential staircase that any thinking person can see is on the verge of collapse. For example, Stephen Jay Gould is... I admire Stephen Jay Gould. I, I must say that. I think he was a sensitive and intelligent writer. But he said some lamentably foolish things. He said that uh, the insistence, as I would insist, on a difference in kind and not simply in degree between us and the great apes is simply a mark of our cosmic arrogance and inability to let go. But in fact, any cursory examination of the great apes and human beings reveal profound and striking differences not only in the organism itself, biomechanically, physically, biochemically, but above all in its nature and soul. 
Here's a simple operational test, which I've mentioned many times to the community of evolutionary biologists. You're having trouble distinguishing a difference in kind rather than degree between you and a chimpanzee. Here's a simple test. The chimps are on the other side of the cage. You're not. <laughs> it's quick, it's effective, it's operational, and it's infallible. Chimpanzees don't talk, they don't do mathematics, they don't speculate, they don't dream, they don't cook, they can't clean up after they make a mess, they dine inadvertently, they don't dance, they don't do music, they can't play an instrument. What more do you want as a difference in kind rather than degree? What more do you want? But there's an underlying much more powerful argument. We know that human beings have some striking properties and we know that the idea that a human being is not simply an animal has a very rich history, a very long tradition. And it seems to resonate very clearly with something in the human soul. According to Darwinian theory, even the psychological, the social, the cultural, and the religious attributes of a human being were introduced into the inanimate world in precisely the same way as any other biological structure. That is, incrementally, by a process of random variation and natural selection. This is, if not holy writ, then certainly holy dogma. Alfred Wallace, who discovered the theory of evolution, a little before Charles Darwin, was struck by this. He couldn't quite reconcile what he understood with what he was claiming. In that respect, he was a very honest scientist, very penetrating intelligence. He said, look, you go to the Amazon forest. You take an Amazonian headhunter, age of six months, family of headhunters. You move them to Oxford in England. Give them a classical English education. The children of the Amazonian headhunters will be in all respects indistinguishable from other graduates of Oxford. That is to say they'll speak perfect English, they'll have a, a, a wonderful ethnic advantage that they can use in acquiring positions at the BBC, namely that they're headhunters... They will be able to do mathematics. They can learn medicine. If they wish to dance, they can dance. They can do anything they want. But Wallace said the remarkable thing is human life, unlike chimpanzee life, human life seems to offer us this very suggestive account of unopened gifts in the human community. Now, of all these marvelous properties that human beings have, developed in this way. How is it that we can go to an Amazonian community or the community of Eskimos and we can discover these gifts waiting and dying to be used? If those gifts are part of the human inheritance, they are not Darwinian. And if they are Darwinian, they are not there because unused gifts have no role to play in the struggle for survival. After all, speaking with a polished BBC accent does a headhunter no good. 
This has been called Wallace's problem in the literature. And of course, biologists are happy to call it Wallace's problem because it sounds so much safer than saying human beings are created in the image of God. That cannot be said, even though it comes to the same conclusion. So here we have, I think, another large area, a rich and a resonant area, where prevailing doctrines about the centrality of human life and the importance of the powers and property properties of the human imagination are retrograde to the scientific community's assessment of where things stand and what they mean. And let me offer you a final example. In 1915, Albert Einstein published the field equations for general relativity. Remarkable, remarkable, beautiful equations where he drew a connection between the curvature of space and time and the behavior of matter. It was a new theory of gravity, a radical theory of gravity, an accurate theory of gravity. And of course, the equations of general relativity are very complicated. They're nonlinear. It's not easy to solve them. They have many, many levels of hidden complexity and meaning. Even 90, 100 years later, we hadn't finished with the equations of general relativity. Einstein had hoped that they would reveal a universe proceeding sedately from the everlasting to the everlasting. He looked and looked and said, yeah, well, I can, I can figure out a way to make my equations do that. What his equations were really telling him, and he didn't see this, is that the universe is not proceeding from everlasting to everlasting. It is expanding. It's expanding dynamically. Space and time are erupting. And if it's expanding, if you run the equations backwards, it follows, does it not, that the universe must have been expanding from something, an initial point. When Edmund, or Edward, I forgot, uh, Hubble discovered the redshift in the late 1920s, building on earlier work by American astronomers, he confirmed the expansion of the universe. And Einstein said, ah, not to have seen that in 1915 was my greatest blunder. My greatest blunder. So the picture that's offered by cosmology today is a picture of an expanding universe. The inference, almost irresistible, is that it is a universe expanding from an initial point when the universe was much smaller, much hotter, much denser, much more compact than it is today. A universe erupting out of nothingness 15 billion years ago may I ask you, suggest just what as an ancillary text? Well, I wouldn't know. What might it suggest? In the beginning, physicists at first were thunderstruck. Penzias, Arnold Penzias was one of the discoverers of the microwave background radiation. He said, hey, I didn't need to study physics. It's all in the first five books of the Torah. Everything I needed to know. 
But of course, the counter-reaction set in immediately. No, this can't quite be the case. <laughs> Where would we be as the sole interpreters of the book of God's work if, God forbid, there was another class of experts who had said it all along? So the community of physicists has been arduous in trying to discover what's behind the Big Bang. The theories that result are really like some grotesque catechismal exercise. <laughs> well, what was behind the Big Bang was a pre-Big Bang. <laughs> and the pre-Big Bang was kind of like an egg. Only it wasn't really an egg, just kind of like an egg. And that egg sort of contracted or maybe it sort of inflated. Or as Vic Stenger would argue, no problem, no problem. This is the result of some other universe tunneling into what? Tunneling. Quantum mechanical tunneling. Or as Stephen Hawking would argue, look, if you, if you look at things the right way, you don't have to go back. You change the whole number system, and instead of going back to a singular point, you reach something like a sack. All times are the same. It's called a Wick transformation in quantum mechanics, where it works perfectly. It's absolutely nonsense in terms of cosmology. Oh, yeah, the Wick transformation does the job. What is so interesting about these exercises, exercises in speculative cosmology, is, of course, the fact that they're absurd. The facts widely accepted by the cosmological community are quite simple. Fifteen billion years ago, the universe erupted out of what seems to be nothing. The trouble with those facts is that sitting here, under the impression of the authority of the scientific community, we can't make any sense of them. It's incoherent. From nothing, nothing. What are we to say? We can't say in all good conscience what we might wish to say. Look, there's a biblical tradition. It says it perfectly clearly. In the beginning, God created the heaven. What more do you need? That's not sophisticated. That's not compelling. That cannot be expressed in the uh, recondite language of mathematical physics, although it can be expressed in plain English and is expressed in plain English. These animadversions sit very ill with the community of professional cosmologists. They are made uneasy by it. We are made at ease by the same animadversions. This is another example, I think, where the scientific community has endeavored with an enormous amount of energy to say to the rest of us, and of course I count myself as a member of the scientific community, I'm trying to straddle the fence. <laughs> Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Each of these large, culturally significant attempts has had a tremendous influence on American society and also on European society. And they have all been, in some respects, 
intellectual failures. What conclusion should we draw from all this? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. How things will play out, largely unknown. That's always as it's been. But I, when I was thinking about this talk this afternoon, I recalled a wonderful uh, story about Sir Richard Burton, the great uh, imperial explorer, not the actor. Burton was a profound Arabist. He was deeply involved with Arabic culture. And he loved the desert. The end of his life, sick, depressed, seeing death coming. He said to himself, following an Arab tradition and poetry, we are as if embedded in a desert tent as the evening is drawing on. We see a few stars in the sky and what we hear receding in the distance is the tinkle of camel bells. That is, I think, where we all are and perhaps we all should be. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Dr. Berlinski. Uh, we now come to the uh, Q&A portion uh, of the evening. If you'd like to ask a question uh, and you're at the patrons' dinner, you can ask a question at the patrons' dinner. If you're not at the patrons' dinner, you have to do the perp walk to that microphone uh, because we need to get the audio of your question. Um, and uh, I'll start while people are gathering their uh, courage to ask you anything. Um, <clears throat> I like to ask a question. How did you... Uh, Get your intellect through customs. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the, um, and by the way, animadversions was the secret word. You get $100. Animadversions. I can't believe. I didn't think that was going to happen uh, in, in books. Um, please, uh, we, we have a strict rule at Socrates in the city. Please be sure and put your question in the form of a question. Okay, so that everybody gets an opportunity. We appreciate that, and I will interrupt you. So go ahead. Uh, good evening. Good Thank evening. you for coming. You're so uh, welcome. My question is, um, I'm from Mexico, and I've traveled around the world. And one of the things I've seen in America, can you hear me well, is that anti right will say this, is that here in America, it's more political to say either Adam and Eve or evolution. And if evolution, there is no God. And he says these things, and many evangelical and Christian leaders will say, it's Adam and Eve, and if we get rid of that, it's nothing. Right? And, you know, um, philosophers like Alvin Plantinga will say, like, evolution has nothing, would not erase anything of any of the consuls. So I would say for you as a scientist, what would you say of this? What would you say of evolution and the story of Genesis and Adam and Eve? This is just a mere allegory. Should we move out of it? Because some of the best 
theologians who say it's just an understanding that God is the creator of man but has nothing to do with the creation of one man and one woman. Thank you. Could be. <laughs> Is it my turn? When you were talking about the dogmatic certainty certain people in the sciences have about their work, I was tracking really well with you. Then when, I, when you talked primarily about uh, or primarily about uh, theoretical physics, astronomy, um, uh, quantum mechanics, right? I, I, from that scientific community, I sense a appropriate humility that we don't have all the questions to understand. We don't understand what dark matter is, dark energy is, you know, how gravity relates to the other three forces, some of the things you mentioned, right? I, I, I sense humility. I, I sense the dogmatic uh, certainty from other branches of the sciences today, and I expected you to pick on them. Uh, I don't know, social <laughs> sciences, environmental sciences, others where the, the, the dogma factor to me seems much, much higher than it does in some of the physical sciences, where as you yourself said, you know, Einstein seems to have gotten it pretty right. I mean, every experiment has verified his findings, whereas the uh, dogma in other sciences seems much greater. Thank you. Well, for sure there's an embarrassment of riches, but uh, as at any banquet, you have to pick and choose, and with respect to the arrogance of the scientific community, no matter what you pick, you will emerge well-satisfied and ready for a round of Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> I disagree with your statement that Einstein got it right. He got it wrong. He thought that his equations demonstrated a steady-state universe. He was wrong. That was his great blunder. The equations remain imperishable monuments to his thought. But he stood corrected by the results of uh, Hubble's research on the redshift. And interestingly enough, in a curious addendum, having spoken with a few of Einstein's personal friends, and I cannot vouch for the authenticity of this remark, they told me that to uh, the end of his life, Einstein just didn't believe in the redshift. Just, just couldn't accept it. That's an anecdotal remark, and I have no evidence for it. Irving Siegel, a great mathematician at MIT who knew Einstein well, said, nah, the old man never believed it. Oh, okay. Am I allowed a five-second follow-up? Uh, I'll give you five. Five, uh, five, okay. But I sensed from your answer that you... Einstein set our understanding of the physical universe further ahead any person since Isaac Newton, and to kind of pick on his not understanding the redshift seems like an infinitesimally small part of his scientific knowledge. Well, there was no attempt to denigrate Einstein's achievement. Nothing I said should take away from uh, special relativity, his work on quantum theory, his work on general relativity. No. It's an immense talent. I'm not criticizing general relativity. I'm saying that the conclusions to which Einstein's field equations and the experimental evidence point 
are embodied in what's now called Big Bang, hot Big Bang cosmology. And that suggests the universe began 15, 14.5, 15 billion years ago. And that raises a question that we all recognize as reasonable. How come? What produced it? That's not in any way a denigration of Einstein. But that is a big question. I'm not a math guy, but this is a short, simple question that you can answer in the language of mathematics if you choose. Roughly, what percentage of Darwinian theory do you consider bogus as opposed to supported by God's, uh, the book of God's works? I'm not sure I grasp the question. Let, let's, let's separate the, the, the conjunction in two parts. What part of Darwinian theory do I regard as bogus in terms of a percentage? Yeah. 100%. <laughs> so then you find nothing in the Darwinian theory that is supported by the book of God's works? Nah. want to get your uh, take on what's happening with string theory. Is it going anywhere or is it just, you know, biting its own tail? That it's going somewhere is indubitable, that it's reaching something is less certain. Um, string theory is an attempt now 40 years old. First papers were 1969, although not recognized as such. Um, by which two very and radically incommensurable theories, quantum mechanics and relativity, could be reconciled. Quantum mechanics is linear, it's renormalizable, general relativity is not. They have very different structures. One of the difficulties with string theory is that the equations, as rich as they are, as suggestive as they are, Certainly consistent with the rest of physics. We have a lot of evidence for consistency proofs in string theory. What we do not have is, in the first place, a convenient or accessible way to assess the theory experimentally. But embarrassingly enough, and this is a much deeper level of discontent, the theory predicts an indefinitely large number of vacuum solutions which apparently correspond to universes where the laws of nature are slightly different, where the parameters of nature are slightly different. And the idea that we live in a multiverse, something like an incredibly large shopping mall with many different stores corresponding to many different universes, strikes many physicists as it strikes me as aesthetically repugnant. <laughs> After all, physics is an attempt to understand our universe, if those other universes are in fact just parts of our universe, well and good. If they're not, how do we communicate with them? So, yes, there is a tremendous amount of work going in into string theory. The number of theoreticians now finding jobs as string theorists has plunged dramatically which should give you some indication of what the community, the physics community, really believes about the future of the discipline. <clears throat> on, on, the, 
on the question of cosmology, I recently heard um, physicist Lawrence Krauss give an extended um, talk on uh, seeking to explain cosmology by ways of natural selection. At the end of his talk, he also sought to explain, I didn't understand it, how s something came from nothing. What is your understanding of the official cosmological uh, doctrine of how s something came from nothing? I think in the case of Lawrence Krauss, the converse is far more appropriate. <laughs> I don't know if you've read it, but you really should look at Donald Albert's review in the New York Times, which is one of the few annihilating reviews of a text in physics published in the last 25 years. Hi, Dr. Belinsky. Um, I've always had a hard time differentiating between, you, you hear atheists always say there's a, there's a difference between positive atheism and negative atheism. Which view do you hold through your book and this talk? And can you help me identify the difference between the two? No idea. <laughs> no idea. Positive, negative. It seems to me that the core of atheism is the declaration that God does not exist, period. I saw Ben Stein's film, uh, Expelled. Me too. And I think you, I think you were in it. <laughs> and uh, the, 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 the most hilarious moment in that film, in which I'd like to hear you extrapolate on this, I'd like to hear your response to this, was when he went, with Richard Dawkins, he went back and back and back, and then what? And then before that, and then before that. And Dawkins's explanation, which was that Actually, it's just that extraterrestrials came and seeded our planet with us. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> but that's what Dawkins did say. Yes. Um, I, I know perfectly well he wished he had never said it. <laughs> and having said it, and a few days later, having realized what he said, he wished he might have died. But nonetheless, there it is. When asked whether possibly God created or initiated life on Earth, Dawkins said, that nah, couldn't be. And Ben Stein said, well, how about space aliens? Now, that is not only Dawkins' view. I mean, Francis Crick was the founder of the theory of directed panspermia. And he's published stuff in the Cold Spring Harbor Symposia, arguing for exactly that point. And you know what? Origins, origins of life researchers are so stumped by the problem in terms of uh, prebiotic chemistry, they're ready to turn to space aliens too. <laughs> and who could blame them? The problem seems to be intractable. Not me. I'm not blaming them. It's so much easier to believe in God. It's so, mu so much more economical. <laughs> Uh, Galileo and Newton seem to have regarded God's book of works as just that, and that they were discovering the wonders that God created. And there now seems to be a very strong Bayesian prior among a lot of scientists that God does not exist, that we have somehow, by accumulated scientific progress, got evidence that comes into our prior belief that, that clouds our, our view of things. 
as opposed to discovering the book of God's works. And you can uh, kind of trace this with the development of, of the Darwin's theories. Uh, but as you look back along those, or at least as I look back along those, every step was that led to a prior that God doesn't exist is, was a naive interpretation of things. How do you account for the very strong, what is evidently a strong prior against the existence of God among scientists? I mean, is it the Darwinian kind of well, going along look, with that? Well, look, why are we using such highfalutin terms? If you have a mafia protection racket in the Bronx <laughs> and there's a Dominican gang that threatens to invade your turf... What would your reaction be? <laughs> How would you organize your prior probabilities? I think that's all it takes to explain the, uh, the current state of the sciences. You've made a number of uh, historical references tonight, which I found interesting. What do you think of Richard Weikert's argument in from uh, Darwin to Hitler? Absolutely right. Richard, yes, I'm sorry. Richard Weikert is an historian. Is it California State at Hayward? Stanislaw. I'm so sorry. Uh, he's a very distinguished historian of, uh, of German history, uh, a thoroughly professional historian. I've read his books very carefully, and I, I've learned a great deal from them. But I knew much of this before from the environment in which I grew up. And Weikert makes the case it's not a simple case, but he says ideologically the Nazis did not spring out of the air. There were antecedents, intellectual antecedents. And they were especially strong in the biological community and just as strong in the medical community. For example, you may not know about the horrendous massacres in Africa undertaken in 1905, presided over by a Dr. Goering, Hermann Goering's father. And the massacres were undertaken entirely for Darwinian reasons. The elimination of the less fit. Now, this is an argument that needs a lot of scholarly care to develop, but uh, assuredly, I think Weikert's fundamental thesis is correct. There is a red line of correlation between the origin of the species, its entry into German academic life, its reception in German academic life, its provenance in the German medical and biological establishment, not the physics established, medical and biological, and the views that the Nazis developed, which after all they claimed, they claimed many things, but they certainly claimed scientific authority for what they're doing. And I think he's absolutely right, and of course he's been mercilessly abused for making that case. Hi, my question is uh, how much should we rely on the scientists about the existing of the God as uh, individuals? Should we do our own research uh, then uh, we should decide if he's existed or not or should we rely on the, whatever the, most of the scientists saying to us? I would cut out the middleman and rely on me. <laughs> Thanks very much.
wrap it up. Thank you so much, Dr. Berlinski. Before we close, a few, uh, a few things uh, to say. Um, first of all, uh, thanks to all of you who are part of Socrates uh, in the city. Um, it's not easy to put these things on. We need uh, funding help, but I think that what we do uh, is worth doing. After all, once in a while we do things like bring you Dr. David Berlinski. So if there's just a shred of, of gratitude, uh, if you get a fundraising letter from us, which I think you may soon, uh, think about the fact that we do need your help, uh, actually, and we're very uh, grateful for the Discovery Institute's uh, uh, help uh, tonight. Uh, let me say this. What we do at Socrates in the City, these events, are meant only to be the beginning of a longer conversation. We, we hope to whet your appetite. Uh, we hope you will purchase books uh, from the man in the bow tie. Uh, and after you leave here from other places, um, by our speakers and think more deeply about these things on your own. We can't solve the world's problems um, uh, in 45 minutes. Oh, well, you came very close, I have to say. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we could just shut this down. Uh, but, um, but we do want you to, to, to continue to think more deeply. Uh, I can say that the devil's delusion uh, is everything William F. Buckley said, a spectacular read. I recommend it very highly. We, we have copies here, uh, of course. But there's so many uh, books by Dr. Berlinski and by our previous uh, speakers that are worth uh, reading, very much so. So I recommend them to you as forcefully uh, as possible. Uh, let me thank all the volunteers uh, who made this uh, evening possible. We couldn't do it without you, and we will not pay you. So thank you for being volunteers. Um, by the way, there was a Blue Gap bag left in the VIP reception. I think it's at the front there. If somebody's missing a Blue Gap bag, uh, it should be there uh, for you. Uh, in a few minutes, uh, we are going to... Uh, end things here, but feel free to hang out. The reception uh, continues. Feel free to talk with folks. Dr. Belinsky will be seated here to sign books. If you're too timid to ask him a question in front of everyone, don't think you can ask it here. No, no, no. Uh, you cannot. No, you've, you're, you're done. So, uh, but he will sign books uh, here. If the line could extend that way, obviously buy the books in the back and make a line and he'll sign books. When that is all over, we will go upstairs, those of us who are part of the patrons' dinner, to the ninth floor, it is the other elevator. When you first came in, not this elevator, but the other elevator, go to the ninth floor. We need to do that fairly promptly. Uh, we need to get started. Uh, is there anything that I'm forgetting? Uh, please visit our website. We continue to have problems communicating with folks. Sign up uh, if you are um, interested in knowing when we have uh, other events, which we will surely do. I don't think we'll have one this summer, but for sure uh, in the fall. We'll leave it at that. God bless you. Thanks for coming to Socrates in the City.